better turn this on, I guess. Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to look at this. I told you a while back that I would be um, bringing this sermon. And uh, because of the Christmas time, we had to take a little bit of a break from kind of routine. So we've been going through a, a series on the fruits of the Spirit. And you're probably wondering what part does integrity have to do with the fruits of the Spirit. So I'm going to read here. Um, if you want to, make sure you hold your position in Genesis chapter 14. But we're going to look at um, Galatians chapter 5, verses verse 22. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. I'm going to read this scripture and then I'll take a minute to pray. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The word gentleness, if looked up in the original, its meaning, one of the meanings, uh, the biblical meaning or biblical usage for it is Integrity or moral goodness. Um, so it can be said of gentleness, but it can also be said moral integrity would be another way of putting it. Um, and some of the other verses that you would find it used in that way would be Romans chapter 3, verse 12, when it speaks of uh, he doing good, and then also in Psalm 14, 3. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you again because truly um, it's an honor, a privilege, and a blessing to be able to share and speak the Word of God. And Lord, your Word is so essential to our life that you said that as we need our necessary food, um, the Word of God is just as important. To sustain us spiritually, Lord, is just as much important, that we know the Word of God, that we put it in practice as we would, Lord, to eat food and make sure that we didn't uh, prolong too long before we had our next meal. And so, God, I just want to pray now that, Lord, this and whatever you're inspiring in this moment would be administered through my lips, Lord, into ears and hearts to be able to receive it, to be able to apply it, to be able to understand it, Lord. God, an understanding of what it is that we're supposed to embrace, the understanding of how we're supposed to take a hold of what you've said and do more than just store it in our memory bank, but take it into our life and apply it to every field in which we live. And so, God, I just want to pray that today you would give grace to this audience. I pray for everyone who will hear this message, that it will empower them and move them forward in the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray most importantly that it will truly elevate your glory and magnify your praise. That, Lord, we will never be a people that are barren of the glory of God in our lives and the magnificence of who you are, always looking to your majesty, always longing and coveting that you would be the one that would be lifted up through whatever takes place in and, in, and through our lives as a result of what you're doing through your word in us. So, God, help us be a people that don't just hear the word of God, but people who carry it out and do it in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. Thank you for a congregation of hungry saints and those who truly love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I also felt like on my heart, there was something about this thought of integrity. And in a sense, I needed a month to just 
to take for myself of what this word would mean to me. And so this next definition is the one I felt like God had breathed or inspired for me personally, and I feel like I want to share that with you this morning. To me, this definition is essential to everything else that I'm going to share in Genesis chapter 14. Um, Integrity is what causes us to voluntarily hold ourselves to a contract or covenant. It gives us the courage to make a vow or promise without the fear of compromising our part. It is the part of us that is obligated upon the intrinsic virtues of our moral agency and will remain consistent, strong, committed, and unwavering without the use of force or compulsion. True integrity has the strength to resist all opposition and persecution, so much so that it will keep us faithful upon the pain of death. That's what I felt like the Lord downloaded for me, gave me in thinking about this. Because for me, the word integrity is a, it's not a broad word, but it's a very important word in when it comes to life. And it seems to me that our culture and our world and even our churches in many ways are missing the mark of integrity. When we have the word grace and you take away integrity, you manipulate it. You redefine it and you take away from what God intended through His grace and redefine it to something else that's in many ways blasphemous. In many ways, it doesn't support the real virtues of God at all. But when you put with the grace of God and everything that God is, this word integrity, you'll see the blend of what Christianity really should look like. And I just can't help but when I think of it, I was like, so what is it that makes some people virtuous in their attitude and behavior toward God, and others who just claim it and use it as if it were just a name on their lips. What's the difference? And I think this word integrity is the difference. So when you look it up in its original, when it's talking about the fruits of the Spirit, you see all of those. Why wouldn't it say integrity is one of the fruits of the Spirit? Something that God produces within His people is a life of integrity. And you have to concerned that all that we do has integrity involved in it. The story that I'm about to give you in Genesis chapter 14 um, highlights to me a story of integrity. And at the end of this story, Abraham says to the king of Sodom, he says, I will not take of a thread or a shoe latchet from you, lest you say that you made Abraham rich. To me, I see integrity all inside of that. That's what's inside of those words that he said. I am going to live up to the plan of God. I am going to live up to what God intends for me and my life. I am not going to shatter that or I'm not going to allow anything to adulterate it, not even on the finest level. Even if it were permissible, it's not allowable in his book. Because he's going to make sure he holds the highest standard for the sake of the God that he loves and has dedicated and devoted his life to. So let's go ahead and read this story in in Genesis chapter 14. Just to highlight and give an idea of what's happening here. And it came to pass in the days of 
I'm going to struggle in some of these names, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Amariphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Shadilamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of uh, Goem, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, uh, with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemberber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is in Zoar. And all these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is in the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shedelamor, Mer, but the thirteenth um, year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, the, this king and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and, uh, and Ashtaroth Kenaim and the Zuzim and, and Ham and Emim in Sheveh, Kirethim, and the Horites in the Mount Seir, as far as Elah Paran, which is by the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to and Misfat, that is in Kadesh, and conquered all the country and the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazon to Mor. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is in Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim against Kedormel, I'm doing it. anyway, the king of Elam and the title king of uh, Goyim and Ariphel, the king of Shinar and Arioch, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And they took also Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. And when a fugitive came and told Abram, which is also Abraham, the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamir and in the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been captive, he led out his trained men born in his house, and pay attention to this, 318 and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night and his servants and defeated them and pursued, pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. And then he has this piece in here in verses 17. I'm not really going to get to this part of it. But verses 17 and on, he has a meeting with uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And if you want to, you can read more about that. I'm going to go back here. Uh, and then here in verse, verse 20 toward the end here, he says, And he gave him a tenth of all. And then verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. 
And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal throng of anything that is yours, for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Those are the ones who he was going to give it to. So Abraham said, they can have it, but I can't. I won't. I won't take it. Now, I don't know if I did a good job of pronouncing those names, but I don't, I don't expect that anybody else would have done any better. What I will say is this, is, is that the reason why I think that that's essential, not necessarily the pronunciation of the names, but how many were involved. And there was four kings, and there was also a set of five kings. And Sodom, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were the ones with the five kings. In other words, it seemed like from that that they would have had the upper hand. Now, I haven't actually gone in to look to see if they had more in number than the others, but you do know they had more kings in support. And Think about the, the idea behind this is, is that basically this is not just kings that go into battle, it's kings and their armies going to battle. And the five kings, or kings Sodom and Gomorrah, they lose. And now... Um, now they're basically coming home with defeat. Now, Abram isn't involved, or Abraham is not involved in it for the same reason that they are. Abraham is involved in it because there's one person that is a relative of his, and his name is Lot. And interestingly, if you look at it a little bit more in the history of your Bible, you'll realize that prior to this story was that Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen had an argument with one another because they had so many uh, of their flocks that they didn't have enough land together to be able to, to feed their, their flocks. So basically, Abraham came to Lot and he said, you're going to have to separate from me and me from you for no other purpose than the fact that our flocks are too big for one another. So let there be no contention between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. And so they separated and Lot went to what he called the well-watered plains of the Jordan, which is right where Sodom and Gomorrah was. So basically, this was the best place to feed his flock, the worst place to live spiritually. And it's interesting that Abraham still holds in heart the value of, of, his, of his relative Lot, and he's still thinking about him and holding on to the fact that he's still a value to God. And I think this is essential because men of integrity will not just look at what you've done, but what is it's God's purpose in your life. And so they will be behind the scenes, even with moments of offense or division, which may not be necessary for other than the fact that you can't be together in the same location for whatever reason. So sometimes there's division, but it's not necessarily that they should divide us of heart. And so we see this. And so Abraham is so stirred at the idea that Lot has been captured. And he's going to now take 300 men, 318, to do what five kings and their men couldn't do. That's pretty bold. So that's our story. That's kind of the narrative here. And then when he wins, then he, uh, he comes back with all the people, all the things that were stolen, and he comes back with Lot. He comes back with far more than he intended to go get, but he came back with it all. And this, the king of Sodom was like, I'm indebted to you. You take all the possessions, just leave the people that are my people. And Abraham says, you take your possessions and you take your people. God has given me what God intended for me to have. And that was a single purpose of going and retrieving Lot. 
and he will let you have what was already yours. So that's the story. Here's a few things that I felt like when I was reading this story and the narrative of it that I think I see that involves integrity, that has a part to do with the integrity of this man. Because if in the end of this story he he shows an example of integrity, then throughout the whole story I think I see the same thing. At least I believe it to be so. So here's one, one thought. Integrity works in an ungodly world. Five kings against four kings with a pursuit of ungodliness, and all it is is just which one is going to win. The, the best man wins, so to speak. And this is what I want to say. The nature of genuineness. So he is involved in this. Abraham is in, this is his world. And isn't it our world today that we're involved in a similar setting where it seems like there's a battle between, it could be Republicans and Democrats. It could be the social world around us. It could be the governing world as we are. But there is a battle going on, and it seems like godlessness is at the heart of it. It seems like man's agenda, man's mindset, and especially without God in the mind in the middle of it. And Abraham finds himself there, just like you and me in our world. But this is what I want to say. The nature of genuineness is so built into integrity that God is not tempting us to sin by leaving us in a sinful world. One more time. The nature of genuineness is so built into integrity that God is not tempting us to sin by leaving us in a sinful world. So the idea behind it is is that God has invested in what His plan and what He's doing in our life to be so genuine and so real that there isn't a threat of sin that's big enough to conquer the people of God. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Look at John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, I know that someone would say, well, does that mean that we're talking about sinless perfection? No, I'm not talking about that. But what I am saying is this, is that God has made sure that when He has regenerated and made you new through the Spirit of God in what we call being born again, there is such a change and transformation in the nature of the person that you've become that you are so connected with God, you might say it's like being connected at the hip. There's... No escaping the fact that my conscience is now sealed in line with what God wants. So we have this this, uh, genuineness that's built into our faith. This integrity that's a part of what God's doing in our life. Here's the second thing that I see in this narrative about the story of Abraham. And it's that integrity embraces bravery. You know, we don't talk much about bravery these days. And because, one, I think it's the picture that we have of being brave. This is something that's meant for men, especially, because we want men that will be brave. We want men that will stand out and do what it is. And and honestly, when you think of the story of Abraham, it's brave. When he's going to take 318 men um, onto this this field of battle, so to speak, and he's he plans on winning this. It's brave, everything that he's doing in the moment. This is what I want to say about this. Integrity embraces bravery. Bravery is not fearless in the face of danger. It is principle over self-preservation. 
And for this reason, real Christians do not borrow weakness as an excuse for misbehavior. And we all know that we have a tendency, we have human uh, fallibility, but we're not, we're not using that as an excuse for our misbehavior. And because we realize that there's a principle over self-preservation. That's what repentance is all about, essentially. It's me being able to agree with God against myself and make right with Him. And so the attitude of repentance is, I will not work on trying to preserve myself, my uh, reputation, um, my, my belongings. I'm not going to do that if repentance calls me to confess the things that I have done wrong. And so oftentimes, you have to let go. Your, your very reputation is going to be shattered if in an area of your life you're like, I have to repent. It's something that I struggle to be able to confess before men and God. And sometimes when the thought of an audience or people knowing about such a thing, and you're like, I don't want anybody to know about that, and it holds you back from, um, from repentance. And what I say there is one of the most courageous people you will ever meet is somebody who will, in, in the, the loss or the possibility or the risk of their reputation, will make things right with God and with others, even though they risk their own reputation at doing it. That's brave. And that's way more than a man who will f- go out in the face of danger as if to say, you know what, no matter what happens to me, live or die, I'm going to go face danger. Because danger is not always the real call of bravery. But it is sometimes the possibility of the risk of my reputation. So the second thought behind this is, God is showing us that an honorable commitment does come with cost. An honorable commitment does come with cost. Look at Luke chapter 14, verse 33. So, Still thinking on this idea of bravery. Luke chapter 14, verse 33. So likewise, whoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Again, God is showing us that an honorable commitment comes with cost. The commitment to Jesus Christ that Jesus called his disciples to was such that he said, you will need to forsake all that you have And follow me. And lastly, excuse me. Lastly, point three is in our flaws, we are designed in such a way to serve his purpose with an assurance of success when kept by his power. So in the end, you read, he actually, uh, Abraham actually defeated the four kings and he brought the stuff back. He had a a successful story. And you know the scripture in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Again, God is not strengthening us to our will, but He is strengthening us to His will, to His purpose, to what is His design. Some people feel so frustrated, so broken, and feel like God has let them down because there was something of their design and purpose they wanted to see happen, and they pushed it to the the end and it didn't happen and God was wanting all along to realign them to their purpose. Here's a story of mine. I, we've said this before, but it's one of the best stories for me in 
in the simplicity of God just wanting us to be on His course. But Caleb and Caleb had lost a rock when we were out in a field on Fourth of July a few years ago, and uh, that and he said it was out in the field, out at the park, and you know where the park is, and up at the top where they had taken out the pool and then redesigned everything, and um, there were still some spots where grass was still somewhat sparse, but it was it was filling in pretty good for the most part, and so. He's like, Dad, can you help me go find my rock? And as little as that rock is, and as insignificant as it is on our level, and much more it ought to be on God's level, yet he already said that it wasn't. It's just to show the the facet of the way God looks at things, the way that God looks at our world that we live in. And even the minute things that pass our attention does not, without his sovereignty, have uh, his mind and his heart upon it. How much more so us? And so here we are out in the field and... We, we go walk the field once. I don't remember if we prayed first. I, I don't recall that the order of event. But I do remember we did end up praying about it. We did twice. And I said, let's pray that God would give us this find, help us find the rock. And after the second time, I said to him, are you sure that it's here? Because if it's in your bedroom or somewhere other location, then the prayer we're praying, this is the point in which people give up on praying. Because they say... I don't know that God hasn't answered my prayer, so they quit praying. What about maybe you need to pray differently? So, Lord, this is how we would change the prayer. God, wherever it is, direct us to where it is if it's not in this field. Instead of direct us to it in the field when it's not even there to begin with. And so he said, yes, I absolutely know that it was in that field. Now, there was a little bit of a hint in my mind that maybe he was a little bit disoriented about it, and I was still in search for something that wasn't there. But we walked it one more time. And when we walked out in the middle of the field, just out to the just the middle, I was walking and I looked down, and there was just a little bit of a bare spot, and there that rock was right by my toe. Right by my toe. And to this very day, the Lord has used that to illustrate the design and purpose behind prayer and seeking God is, is that we our whole heart's intent is to find the will of God in the matter that we're praying for. And so sometimes we overlook it because we feel like the bigger matter is what's most obvious. And sometimes, really, the thing that's not obvious is the bigger problem. So anyway, seeing that, I see that in our flaws, just to say that one more time, we were designed in such a way to serve His purpose with an assurance of success when kept by his power. So we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So here's another thing I see in this narrative of that he's against all odds. What he's doing is against all odds. Do you not see that over and over again? When you read your Bible, wow. Like God actually takes Gideon's army and he reduces it down to 300. And it's, if I remember right, it's literally 10 against 1 odds in Gideon's army. When you, when you actually read this story, What's the chance they can win? And then God actually tells Gideon, I want you to go out there with just a pitcher and a candle in the middle of the pitcher, and then I want you to take it, and I want you to smash it and say the sword of the Lord and Gideon, and that's how you're going to win over 30,000 men in army against you. How chaotic and crazy is that? And so it's against all odds. And what I want to say is this, is that integrity comes, integrity stands against all odds. This is the thing, if you don't have integrity and you see that it's standing up, that there's no possibility and you don't have integrity, you're going to give up right then and there. 
But Abraham knows that this is bigger than whether he makes it through the battle or not. And I don't know why he sees it that way. I just know that from what he's doing here, he sees this bigger than himself. So here's two thoughts on that. The pursuit of the noble always outweighs the risk it takes to achieve it. He knew that what he was shooting for and what he was going after was worth the risk of achieving it. I believe, now I don't have anything in the Bible that tells me for sure this, but I believe that when Abraham took his son Isaac and was offering him up as a sacrifice, Abraham did not know that he was bringing his son down from that mountain until the angel of the Lord had stopped him from taking that knife to his own son. I think Abraham walked the course of faith with not in a sense of an assurance that it was going to turn out any particular way and that God had told him anything other than go make your son a sacrifice. But this is how God gets into our lives and hearts, is that we're beginning to pursue what it is that God's called us to do, and we know that that's more noble than the risk it is that it's going to maybe take our life or even injure us along the process in doing so. The second thought behind this is that integrity stands against all odds. The boldness to face our fears comes with our... Uh, comes from our real confidence in the transcendency of God. Say that one more time. The boldness to face our fears comes from our real confidence in the transcendency of God. Abraham knew that God could carry him. Abraham knew that it wasn't in his weaponry. It wasn't in his force. It wasn't in his muscle. It wasn't in his stature. It wasn't in his knowledge of how to be able to uh, do warfare. He knew it was not in his talent. It wasn't in his ability. But if God had called him to do it, he was able to do it without fear. And he knew that the transcendency and the might and the power of God was back behind the will of God. And here's a scripture for it. In Revelations chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first... And the last, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And he says, I have the keys of hell and death. That's the God who's commanding behind your life. So if he says, this is my order, and you follow that, the one who has the power over life and death, the power who has the very authority over all things, is now committing that to you. What will he not do to make sure and ensure your safety in his cause? So this, this is the, the idea and the understanding that God has transcended beyond my own strength. Here's another thing that I see in the story. I'm just picking these, I, these thoughts of this narrative and what I see in, in Abraham's life. And then I see this, that he, he goes at night, and I think that's unique. He goes at night and he takes his 318 men, because even though he's against all odds, He's not haphazardly throwing himself at the wind of sovereignty. You know, Jesus said that when he faced the devil, and the devil was tempting him, and he said, throw yourself down from here, and the angels will bear you up in their arms. And even though there was scripture to go along with it, there was also discernment that Jesus had. And with that discernment, he said, it also says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so, there was a need for, there's always a need for discernment. And in this, there was a plan. And Abraham knew he wasn't haphazardly throwing himself at the sovereignty of God because God is able. I'm just going to go do whatever. 
but I'm going to, with plan and purpose, and I don't believe it was just Abraham's plan. I think it was wisdom that God downloads to a man in all things. And, you know, this week we had a, we were actually praying about one of these frozen, uh, it was at my other house, praying about the frozen pipes. And, um, and my wife was like, I don't want you to get under the house and, and do all that. And I'm like, and I could see her love in it and her endearment for me. And I was like, I don't want to get under the house and crawl like a fish on the dirt in order to find out where this is and take my heat gun and go back and forth until it thaws out the pipe, which will probably only take me just a couple minutes to do that, but it would probably take me more time to crawl under the house than it is to thaw out the pipe. But this was the thought that came to my mind was we're praying for God to thaw out the pipe so that I don't have to go there. And essentially, there's the fact that God is powerful enough. He could definitely do that. That's not the issue. But this was the thought that came to my mind, and I said this to her. I said, I don't think that God calls uh, angels to do what he knows men can do. He, uh, he has us applied our strengths to what we can do, and then he gives us the grace, the miracle, and the power to do what we cannot do. He expects you to do your part. And I wouldn't want our faith to be with, as if we could sit and do nothing. We wanted to be a part of what God is investing us in. So we see this in Abraham, and he takes him at night, and I wonder if none of the other kings could see that. They didn't have the brilliance to realize. Maybe they thought that they were so powerful. And sometimes that's our problem. Our pride gets in the way of reality. And so we don't actually think strategically because we think we're equipped to do it in our own strength. And Abraham knew that with 318 men, there was no way that he was going to be able to take this army by the strength of his army. God was going to have to do this. But God gave him a plan. And he took them at night and did this. So integrity comes with a plan. God calls us to exercise all our faculties as he infuses us with his graces. And I was reminded of that through this uh, situation. So now let me finish the story with throwing out the pipes. You know, a lot of times God say, there's more to this than what you see. So I got under there and I thought out the pipes and I'm like, oh, wow, my Leatherman that I lost. It's probably been over two years. Oh, yes. I finally found that Leatherman that I had lost. And along the way, there was something else. I forgot what it was. But looking under there, it was like, oh, there was more to this than just thawing out pipes. And so it's just a reminder for us that sometimes in our subtle ways, we want God to do an extreme event over little things when he really wants you just to be a part of, of this thing in a, in a minute way and see other things unfold in light of that. Anyway, that was just a little nugget for the moment. Integrity comes with a plan. A well-devised plan is a gift from God. So let's look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. A well-devised plan is a gift from God. In Proverbs 16, 9, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Isn't that awesome? A man's heart plans his way. You figure out where you want to go, and then God directs you, whether that's the right way or not, and he directs you in the way you need to go. But he actually takes time to plan his way. You know, I remember a man um, that was a good friend of mine, and he was in debt, huge debt. And he took time to get all of his uh, debts written down. He sat down and he wrote it down. He prayed about it, let God kind of lead him through it. And he, he took his first debt, and you know how we talk the snowballing debt, and take the smallest one, put the extra money on the smallest debt, cancel that, go to the next one, the next one down. 
And this is what he said. He said, according to my plan, it was supposed to take so long. I, I don't know how long that was, but it should have taken such amount of time. But when I put in practice what I had put down on paper, God had given him a blessing. And he said it went way faster than it was on his plan. But he made a plan and God blessed that plan. You, you see what I'm saying? And part of that plan is, is seeking God's direction in. Lord, help me see the vision and help me line it out and actually have a plan here. So I believe a devised, a well-devised plan is a gift of God. As if God doesn't, doesn't want you to have any plan, just go up there haphazardly and hope for it to happen. And I believe there's times where that takes place. And God's the one who leads you in that way. But most of the time, God actually has a plan for us to help us move forward. Here's another scripture in Jeremiah 10, verse 23. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. God does the directing, you do the planning. Pretty good, right? Simple enough. And then lastly, in this narrative of Abraham, I see this thought in here. Integrity has a single eye. When he talks to the king of Sodom and he says, I won't take of a thread or a shoe latchet. And all that Abraham does, his single purpose, what you notice is he maintains that throughout this whole story. That Lot was his focus and that is what he ended with. How many of us begin the race and, and the, uh, the heart for God with a single focus and then get lost in there somewhere? There was money that got involved. There was reputation that got involved. There was, there was opportunities that you didn't foresee. And all of a sudden that came and you got enticed by it. But we see at the end of this story that Abraham didn't let the enticement and the opportunity of victory, of what came out of his victory, that he would seize on. He was going to keep that single focus. And we know that Jesus talks about a single lie in the Word of God. My first point in this is that when the enticement of our desires are the strongest, then our true loyalties will be revealed. Your true loyalties. So sometimes it's not whether you would take it, it's at the cost that you would do it. So somebody, you wouldn't take it at a dollar. I won't compromise for a buck, but for $5,000 or $500,000, I would compromise it. So it's not that you wouldn't compromise, it's at the price that you would compromise. And so this is where we see the story of let's not compromise. And, and the devil took Jesus up and he said, if you'll worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, I won't compromise that. Not at all. That I will worship God and him alone. So there was no offering big enough to, to bring shame to the testimony of the Son of God. Neither should there be for us. So the bigger question oftentimes, if there's compromise in our life, what was it that enticed you to compromise? And why would you continue that compromise now? And so if there's not integrity backing it, you actually label those compromises under the grace of God. And now you give leniency because God is gracious and He's a loving Father and He's a forgiving Father. And now you found a great uh, opportunity to now be compromising under grace rather than loyal under grace. And so grace actually calls us to loyalty, to faithfulness, to a, a pursuit of what's honest and pure. If in your life you're constantly faltering and failing and it's a roller coaster Christianity for you, then I'm going to say you've missed the call of God. God has not called us to the roller coaster kind of Christianity when it comes to the commitments and the moral nature of what, what we're doing for Jesus, what we're, how we're living for Him. So here's this thought is those that are true to God will remain true to God. 
Here's one other thought, because sometimes it's not just your desires, but now it's your temptations. Pretense can remain undetected with small temptations, but real character is revealed when trials and tribulations are their most difficult. Real character is revealed when it's really difficult. My brethren, in chapter in James chapter 1, 2, verses 2 through 4, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse and various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. So why, why are we being tried? Why are we suffering? Why are we going through what feels like a fiery furnace for us? Because God is not trying to get you to faith. He's trying to reveal the faith that's there. If you're already standing in that place of faith, then this trial is not going to diminish. It's going to keep you strong. So here's my last point that I want to focus on. Integrity is uncompromised when it is tested and intensified when we have a single pursuit of God. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9. He who walks with integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his way will become known. He who has integrity walks with security. I love that. So integrity is uncompromised when tested, intensified, when we have a single pursuit of God. I think what's beautiful is is when when a, a child of God can boldly say, I'm not afraid that I will compromise. I'm not afraid that the world will get a hold of me. I'm not afraid that I am going to become lukewarm in my faith and my commitment to God. And the reason why is because God invested in me the moment I was born again and saved. That moment, He invested something through the power of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to call integrity, the fruit of the Spirit. And I can't just... I can't at low cost sacrifice the things of God. And you can't bid it high enough to give me to give up what God has given me through the blood of Jesus. Through an uncompromised commitment that Jesus Christ made to me a long time ago, and me seeing the value and the beauty of that great love has without fail put my heart in a position to do the same for Him. There's an old song, I love it. It's, uh, it's um, Oh to Grace, How Great a Debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. To grace I'm the debtor. And I'm constrained to be indebted to that grace the rest of my life. So what do I offer up? I offer up the good works that are bound to the favorableness of God given to me on ways that I can't imagine. God loves His people. God loves the commitment of His people. He loves the faithfulness of His people. And why else? Again, like as you wanted to say, that He knew that He could put us in a sinful world without the risk that He would lose us in the end. He knew His people all along and those that would be committed because along the way, He supplied for us. This is the thing. I'm, I've decided that God wouldn't leave you in a wicked world that you're in. He wouldn't leave you there and, and keep you in a place that He had good probability of losing you. So that by that I say is whether you see it or not, God is invested. God has given in linked in union to Him and in relationship to Him all the power we need, all the strength we need to be not just conquerors, but as the Bible says, more than conquerors. More than conquerors. And we're not bound to the the world itself. We're free from it. And I love that. You know, Jesus didn't just set us free from sin. He set us free from the world. 
And he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Believe me, I don't think he would do that if he didn't know if he if he knew he wasn't securing enough. Here's another powerful verse. It's been on my heart. This is my go-to verse when I'm claiming the promises of God. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 32, if I remember right. And it's this. He said, uh, if he that spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Did you hear that? Freely give us all things. Search through your Bibles. Let's just take the time to do that. And search through every promise in that book, everything you see here, and he's freely given it without cost. Freely given it. That means when we get on our knees, we have a heavenly father that's rich beyond anything we know, and we can call on him at any moment, at any second, and he's disposed to pour out his promises to secure your safety, your welfare, and your spiritual well-being in this world, and to make sure and ensure that in the end that you're there uh, when he, the role is called up yonder. He wants to make sure that we walk safely and securely with Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I want to invite the worship team to come up. I want you to take time to respond to the Lord this morning. Maybe the Lord has ministered something very specific to your heart out of this time. And integrity is huge. And uh, if there's a point of compromise that you've struggled with and you've known for quite a while, this would be the time to seal the deal with the Lord. God didn't get us here because he wanted us just to go through the service. He wanted to break our hearts. He wanted to mend our hearts. And he wanted to rejuvenate and rebuild our hearts. And if there's anything in our life that's even remotely getting in the way of God, let's take time today. I want to invite you to come to the altar or right there where you're at. But I want you to take time before the Lord now, and and let God have his way with you before we close or do anything more in this service. Let him speak to you this morning. Yes. Amen.